Good morning again. As I, uh, as I looked out earlier, it was nice to see some people who have been away who are back. That's great. Um, I've been away, of course, as well for a while, so uh, on and off. So it's, it's good, to be, good to be here. Our scripture reading for this morning is, our sermon text, is Leviticus 21 through 22. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles out, uh, just outside the door on the table there. Feel free to grab one of those and uh, use it for the service. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you should also feel free to grab one of those and keep it. Uh, Write your name in the front, uh, take it home with you, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we, before we read Leviticus 21 and 22, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we come. Our Lord Jesus, we, we come. Uh, we come to you. We come to hear from you. We come to hear of your grace. We come to be refreshed in your mercy. We come to, to, to be reoriented in life, to have our minds renewed, to begin to think about life rightly in a way that honors you. To be gone. We come to be changed by your spirit and empowered to, to live for you. We come to find your grace and to rest in it, to rejoice in it. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now to that end. We pray that you would be with me as I... As I preach, as I teach, we pray, Father, that you would guide my thoughts, my words, um, that anything that's not of you would simply be forgotten, and uh, pray that what is of you, Father, would sink deeply into our hearts and take root there and uh, bear fruit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. And the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. For he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, 
that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has an omission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself, or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A layperson shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part of it too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. 
Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animal gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall be, remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. The English word profane is one of my favorite words. I know, you're wondering where I'm going with this. The word profane is one of those words uh, that has this really important meaning that has been lost. You know, when we think of the word profane, we tend to think of, uh, of something that's bad or immoral. At best, we, we might think of it as, as something that's irreverent. But the word profane actually means outside the temple. Uh, the word pro means before or outside, uh, the, the prefix pro, and the word fane comes from a Latin word for temple, profane, outside the temple. Uh, profane is not intrinsically bad. It's not bad for Israel to be outside of the temple. It wasn't bad for them to live in their tents, to work their fields, to tend their flocks, to raise their families. It just didn't happen in the temple. Now, I have to be honest, I, I actually don't know if the English word profane has ever been used in this kind of morally neutral way. Uh, maybe it was in Latin uh, before that, but I'd like to think it was. Uh, and if so, uh, the, our current use of the word profane for something necessarily bad or wrong or irreverent um, is actually symptomatic of a couple of things. So on the one hand, it's, it's symptomatic of our degrading the world in which we live. Think about it. Uh, as if, we use the word profane as if it were bad, as if to be outside the temple was necessarily immoral. As if common, every ordinary, uh, common everyday ordinary life were necessarily bad. Second, uh, our, our use of that word profane in the way we do uh, hints at a loss of understanding of the holy or the sacred. I mean, if profane just means bad, uh, then holy comes to just mean good. And third, what the, all this means is that we, we lack proper categories to understand life. You know, part of the creation mandate for Adam and Eve from the very beginning was to take the profane and to make it holy. Not, not because the profane was bad, uh, it was good, right? God had made it, everything was good. There was no sin yet in the world. But Adam's call was to take what was good and profane and to make it holy. That, that's actually in part what it means to worship, isn't it? 
That, that's what it means to live for God, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to do all things for the glory of God, to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, to put everything in subjection under His feet, to make even your lunch holy through the Word of God and prayer. To profane something, on the other hand, is really to take something that is already in subjection to Christ, already obviously to the glory of God, already used for His glory, and to treat it as if it were not. To use that thing not for God's glory, but for one's own. To treat a holy thing as if it were a common thing outside the temple. And that, obviously, is, is bad. Now, this is all a bit abstract, I realize, uh, so let's tell a story. Uh, our outline uh, this morning, you can see it on the back of your bulletin. Uh, we're going to talk about the story of the profane, and then we're going to talk about our move from profane to priesthood, and then we're going to talk about our priestly calling. So, first, the story. Right? Act, act one. Purity in paradise. We, we keep going back to creation as we're working through Leviticus, and one of the reasons is, is because Leviticus builds on uh, the story of creation and a proper understanding of the world in which, uh, that God has made. And in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden. Uh, the garden was like a little temple in the big world. And it, it was a place that God met with his people. And in that sense, it was holy. It was set apart for a specific purpose. The whole world belonged to God, but, but the garden in Eden had a special purpose. This was a holy place. In it, there was no death, there was no impurity, only perfection and order and wholeness and love. And God gave Adam and Eve a mandate, a calling, a vocation in the garden. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to subdue it, which means that they were to bring everything in subjection under the feet of Christ. They were to move out into the world, fill the earth, right? Move out into the world, fill the earth, and extend the temple, as it were, subdue it. They were to take the profane, every square inch of the created order, and make it holy. They were to take the wilderness and make it a fruitful land to the glory of their Father until the glory of God covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. Of course, that's not what happened, which brings us to, to Acts 2, right? Exiled from Eden. Instead of building a temple that filled the earth, instead of sanctifying the profane, Adam and Eve profaned what was already sacred. See, instead of taking what was still chaotic and wild and bringing it into subjection under God's feet, they took what was under his feet, the one thing the Father had said, hands off, this is mine, this is holy to me, don't touch this, they took that for themselves. For their own kingdom, their own glory. They wanted to be like God, to be king, to be in charge, to have everything in subjection under their feet, to be in control. So rather than extend Eden, they were exiled from Eden. They were put outside of the temple. And God placed cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to stop humanity from coming back into God's holy place. And in this sense, of course, the word profane is a bad thing because to be profane was to be outside of God's temple. It was to be under the curse. It was to be cast out, abandoned, alone in the wilderness, to be absent God, absent His presence, absent His love. 
Which brings us to Act 3, which is doing it all over again. Uh, God was not done with humanity, right? He didn't simply cast them out of the temple garden and then leave them there. Uh, he had a desire to restore humanity to himself. And so God chose a, a people, Israel, and he had them build a, a new garden temple, right? The tabernacle in the midst of the wilderness. And he had them embroider cherubim in the curtains to guard the way back into the garden. In fact, he had them place pomegranate uh, fruits on the hem of the high priest's robe. And, and, and when the more permanent uh, temple was finally built under Solomon, he decorated the capitals and the, the, on top of the pillars with 400 pomegranates. So nobody missed the point, right? This was a return to Eden. This was a return to God's presence, to the holy, to the sacred garden. And this is actually the reason for the laws in these chapters of Leviticus. All of these laws concerning the priest and his uh, responsibilities. Uh, we can summarize the laws actually fairly quickly. Uh, first, you have these laws in, in chapter 21 for the priests and for the chief priest. Restricting, uh, at fir the first thing we see is restricting their mourning rituals. Why? Why would their mourning rituals be restricted? And they're restricted for the, high, for the priest. They're even more restricted for the high priest. What's the point? Well, in Eden, there was no death. No death in the Garden of Eden. And the priests in the temple were to be a picture of the return to Eden. Eden is a place of joy. Eden is a place of no mourning, no crying, no tears. So... Uh, we have these laws that tell the priest, no, no, you're not to mourn. That's not a part of your role. You're to be a picture of paradise. Then we have these laws in verse 5. Verse 5 says, uh, They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. And uh, we, we've actually heard these before. You may remember back in chapter 19, verses 27 and 28. We didn't talk about them, I don't think, when we talked about 19. But in uh, chapter 19... We read, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. And in both places, in chapter 19 and in chapter 21, uh, the point of the laws is about not doing these things for the dead. Right? 1928 makes that explicit. Right? Don't do these things for the dead. Uh, but 21.5 shows that by way of the context, right? It's talking about mourning rituals, restricting mourning rituals. And then it goes into these things about cutting and shaving and all of these things. For whatever reason, some Israelites would mar their bodies for the dead. And uh, there were a couple of possibilities. It could be that th this was simply an extreme form of, of mourning. Right? We, we know it was common for them to, to, to tear their clothes, to put on sackcloth and ash. Maybe some actually cut themselves from the sadness. It was a way of showing your grief. This is what happens when grief overtakes you, perhaps. But it, it, it actually could also be a part of ancestor worship. Uh, we know that cutting was a part of Baal worship. You see that uh, elsewhere in the scriptures. And even cutting hair... And offering that on the altar was a part of pagan worship because your hair was symbolic of your life. And so it's possible that God is saying here, look, don't worship the dead in your mourning. Don't venerate them through these kinds of actions that the pagans do. 
to worship the dead, to worship their ancestors. So the point is, right, the priests are not to mourn as others did, certainly not mar themselves for the dead. They are representatives of Eden, representatives of life. Similarly, similarly then, we have these laws about, about marriage and sexuality for the priests and for the chief priest as well. Again, the garden was a place of purity, faithfulness to God, single-hearted devotion, and the priests in their marriage were to reflect that uniquely. It's not that all of these things were wrong uh, per se. Some were, but not all of the things listed were. Uh, Nowhere else, in fact, nowhere else in the Old Testament is there a command against marrying a divorced woman. We we kind of assumed there would be, but there's not, right? Um, In fact, Deuteronomy 24, which is the closest place, Deuteronomy 24 stops a man from marrying a woman he had once divorced who had been remarried in the interim. It's very, very specific. But there's no blanket law in the Old Testament against marrying someone who had been divorced. But the priests, on the other hand, the priests were, were not just called to do right, they were called to be holy, distinct, set apart. They were called to be pictures of the pre-fallen world, walking with God in the garden in purity and in faithfulness. Then we have 21 verses 6 through 24, 16 to 24, which are laws about the priests priests who have blemishes, bodily, physical blemishes. And, uh, you know, maybe as you read through those laws, the first thing you thought was, this is not politically correct. Essentially, any priest with a physical handicap could not serve as a priest. But again, remember why. Remember sort of the, the point, what's going on. They were to be a picture of life in paradise. A place where there were no blemishes, no imperfections, no handicaps, no, no, uh, only whole, wholeness, only perfection. And so those with any blemishes could not approach God in this symbolic ritual world. Note, though, they were allowed to eat of the holy food and the most holy food. It showed God's care and provision even for them, right? God, it's not that God didn't care for them, but they didn't fit this picture this type, this imagery that God was trying to present to his people. And then we turn to chapter 22, and we find the same kinds of laws. Oh, chapter 22 first, 1 through 9, we find that an unclean person could not approach the holy thing. So even a priest who didn't have any physical blemishes, if he was unclean, ritually unclean, he couldn't approach the holy things. They had to first be cleansed. Again, it's a picture of Eden. Priestly role is to show fellowship with God in paradise. That's what shapes this law. Same thing with uh, later on in 22, verses 10 through 16, which basically say that no lay person, no non-priest can eat of the priest's portion of sacrificial food. Holy people could eat holy food as a picture of paradise. Next part of chapter 22 gives the same kinds of requirements for unblemished animals as we saw for priests. So sacrificial animals, again, symbolically approached God in fire and smoke. They ascended up into heaven. So they, too, had to be unblemished, to be accepted on Israel's behalf. Now, the priests were to keep all of these laws for a specific purpose. In order, we're told again and again, not to profane God's name not to profane God's sanctuary. They had to treat God as holy, 
set apart, different from us. They had to treat God's house in the same way. Interestingly, uh, chapter 21, verse 4, warns the priest against profaning himself. He had to remember that he himself was holy and treat himself differently than other people treated themselves. The priest was set apart to a holy God. His life was not his own. He should not profane himself by thinking that he's just like any other person. The priests are a picture of purity in paradise. Of course, you may know the rest of the story as you read on in the Old Testament. The priests do profane the holy place. They do desecrate the sacred. They offer animals that are blind and are lame. They stand up idols to false gods right in the temple. And the result is that once again, God's people are exiled, cast out of Eden, cast out of paradise. Now they're cast out of the promised land. The priests treat God and his holy place as if it were profane. And so he, God, profanes them by casting them out of his temple presence. He takes them into exile in Babylon. So on the one hand, the building of the temple and the tabernacle are are sort of the Garden of Eden writ large for all to see. And then the subsequent story of Israel heading into exile is the fall and the exile of Adam and Eve writ large for all to see. Of course, God still does not abandon his people, right? He doesn't give up. Israel profaned the holy. But in Jesus, we see that the holy becomes profane. And Jesus comes into the world as the second and last Adam, Scripture tells us. He comes to do what Adam failed to do and to undo what Adam did. Jesus comes as the Holy One into the profane, out of God's dwelling place, God's temple in heaven. He becomes a man, one of us, a simple carpenter's son. In his life, though, Jesus doesn't shy away from death. He doesn't shy away from the impure. He touches the casket of the widow's dead son. He touches the unclean leper. He lets the prostitute touch his feet and anoint him with oil and perfume. He, lets, he, he associates with the divorced Samaritan woman. It seems like Jesus is unconcerned with priestly purity. But of course, unlike the priests of the Old Covenant, Jesus did not come to avoid our impurity, but to bear it. And so he went to the cross. He tasted death and became unclean. And he did that for his unfaithful bride, the church. His appearance was marred, blemished. So much so that Isaiah says he didn't even look like a man. He was marred so much on the cross. Jesus, in this sense, is is kind of like the the unpriest, right? Taking our uncleanness upon himself, dying to betroth himself to an unfaithful bride. But Jesus took our uncleanness, and he took our death, and he took our impurity, and he took our unfaithfulness, and he took our imperfection so that he might put them in the grave and leave them there. And then he rose. And in his resurrection, he conquered death, right? He is the priest who represents the life of paradise to the world, not because he keeps all of these rituals, but because he is the one who has that life in himself. The infection that ends in death, right, is very real in our lives. Sickness and disease and the slow breakdown of our bodies, these are all signs that death has taken hold. 
But Jesus embodies life in his resurrection. He is life. And he offers that to all who will come to him. In his resurrection, the Father was declaring Jesus free from impurity. And he now offers us, his bride, the church, his clean status as we put our faith in him. We can be accepted by the Father. Whatever our uncleanness, whatever our impurity, whatever our imperfection, we find acceptance in Christ. In Jesus' resurrection, the Father uh, declares him faithful to the end and rewards that faithfulness with life. And Jesus offers us that same reward if we will come to him. In his resurrection, we see humanity as it was meant to be. And yet somehow, interestingly, right, in Jesus' bodily resurrection, in Jesus' resurrection glory, some of his blemishes, the blemishes of his work remain. Isn't that interesting? Jesus rises from the dead in this perfect, glorified body, and yet his his nail-pierced hands and his spear-pierced side remain as symbols symbols of his priestly, humble priestly work. So Jesus is raised, right, as our perfect high priest. And what does he do? He ascends into the heavenly temple and he sits down at the Father's right hand and he begins to intercede for us with the Father to continue his priestly work. See, Adam was placed in uh, the garden temple, but rather than sanctifying the profane, he profaned the sacred and was cast out of the garden into the wilderness. The Israelites in their priesthood were given access to God in his uh, tabernacle, in his temple. But again, rather than sanctifying the profane, they profaned the sacred and were cast out of the promised land into the wilderness of Babylon. Jesus leaves the true temple in heaven and comes into the profane, into the mundane, into the common, into the ordinary, and he offers his life completely to the Father. Every aspect of his life is dedicated to his God. All of life is consecrated, sanctified, offered up, even to the point of death on the cross, for our holding ourselves back. And as a result, he wins the right to enter back into the temple, which he does in his resurrection and ascension. Which moves us to our our next point from profane to priesthood. You know, we have this story, right? We have this story of the garden and the temple and the cross and the resurrection of humanities calling to sanctify the profane, but instead they profane the sacred. A story of Jesus who becomes profane that we might be sanctified. What does this story say about us? Well, if you come to faith in Christ, here's what the Bible says of you. Here's here's a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1 says, We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus, and goes on in chapter 2 to say that we have become, in light of that, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are not our own, we have become priests. There's no category, by the way, of Christians that are priests, right? All Christians are priests, every one of us. Ephesians 2 then says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ, right? Made us new people, uh, regenerated us, worked in us by His Spirit from the inside out to give us life. By grace you have been saved, Paul says, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Made alive and raised up and seated with Christ. Okay, what am I getting at by stringing all these passages together? You know, the Old Testament priesthood was set apart from other Israelites. Uh, they were ritually set apart so that they could enter into the earthly tabernacle. But Christ, our great high priest, was sanctified by the Father in his resurrection because he first sanctified the Father in his life, right? So he obeyed the Father completely. He honored him with his whole life. And so God set him apart. Jesus was set apart by being raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. No earthly king, no religious leader, no other person in history can claim that. That they have been raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. No one can claim to have been sanctified by the Father to such a degree that they have been raised and seated above all others, the Bible says. He was raised above every rule and every authority. Here is Jesus, completely honored, set apart by the Father. No one else can claim that. Except, in a sense, all of us. Right? Did you ever notice that in Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians 2, right? We were made alive, spiritually made new. Then we were raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. It's being made alive with Christ, this being raised with Christ, this being seated with Christ means that you have been set apart by the Father. If you belong to Christ, you have been made holy and entered into the holy place, the temple in heaven with Christ, through, being, through your union with Christ. You're no longer profane. Isn't that good to know? In fact, the New Testament says, of course, that the church, the people of God, is the temple. You, you can't ever leave the temple again. You, you can't ever be profane again because you've been taken out of the world and placed in the temple as a part of it. You have been set apart by the Father. You have been honored by Him. You have been placed in His temple as an integral part of His holy place. We are the holy place of God. And we have been made a priesthood. Okay, what, what am I getting at? What am I trying to say with all of these things? If you are in Christ, you are objectively holy. You are holy. I'm not saying you're perfect. I know better, at least for some of you. But you are holy. You are set apart by the Father for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a holy priesthood. You are holy, a part of the living temple of God and a priest to serve Him. Which brings us then to our priestly calling. What does it mean for us to be priests today? Right? If that's what we're saying, we've been made, we, we are the temple we are priests. What does that mean? What does that look like? How does that work itself out? Well, there, there, are actually, there are actually a lot of things that we could say about this, and I promise not to say them all. I promise not even to try to say them all. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, right, the New Testament worship and mercy and evangelism are all connected with our priestly role. But we're not going to talk about those, not today. So what does it mean for us to be priests today? 
Does it mean not mourning for the dead, not marrying divorced people, doing our best to avoid becoming ritually unclean? No. Uh, God had Israel, right, in this symbolic ritual world to be a symbolic picture of life in paradise. That was great for that period of time. But now Jesus has come. And in his resurrection, we have not a symbolic picture, but an actual picture of life. Getting out of the grave, folding up your grave clothes, setting them aside, and taking a seat next to the Father in heaven. Life. Right? That's life. So then what does it mean to live as priests? Well, let me give some kind of general principles from Leviticus 21 and 22, and then a couple of specifics as well in light of the passage. So the, the general. Uh, th- this passage is focused on making sure the priests don't profane God's name, don't profane God's sanctuary, don't profane God's people. You find that word again and again as you read through the, the chapters. They're, they're, they're to not profane those things. And in order to not profane those things, you know, the, the reverse of that is to sanctify them, right? To set them apart. Not to treat them as common, everyday, ordinary, but to treat them as holy. To acknowledge God's holiness, His sacredness in life. It's to sanctify them. So, so what do we need to do? Well, we need to sanctify God's name. In, in other New Testament language, right? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify God's name. That's, that's what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer when he said, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed it is just another word for sanctify. What it means is God's name, God's reputation, God's glory is set apart. It's like a movie star's name in lights, right? Where everyone oohs and ahs when they see it. Except it's God's name in our hearts, set apart. Has a, a, a separate place above all other names. To sanctify God's name is when God's name and God's reputation has more weight in my heart than my reputation or anyone else's for that matter. To live for God's reputation is to live for His glory. And the question for us is whose whose reputation am I living for? Whose name am I living for? I I had a friend and mentor ask me some hard questions recently. Uh, and, and I was struck in a new way how much my goal in life is to glorify me. It's so tempting, isn't it, to want people to like me, to know me, to praise me, to think well of me. My glory has weight in my heart. And of course, I want it to have weight in everybody else's heart, too. We need to sanctify God's name. Live for it, love it, cherish it, honor it. And pray that that would be so. Father, hallowed be your name in my heart. Second, we need to sanctify the church. And part of the priest's role was to not profane the sanctuary, God's dwelling place. Well, what is God's New Testament sanctuary? It's the church. Right? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, sometimes, sometimes it's easy to get cynical about the church, right? Um, the church is not perfect. Uh, there are always things you, you, you don't like, right? Uh, nothing ever seems to be done the way you think it should be done. Or the people are never as warm and loving as they should be. Or they are too lovey-dovey and not serious enough about holiness. You'll always find doctrinal statements to disagree with. Or the music will never be quite right. The church is never concerned enough about 
fill in your favorite calls here, right? And as imperfect, though, as the church is, she is holy. We are God's holy people. This is God's holy day. This is no ordinary gathering. This is, this is not like getting together to play football. Right? That's good. That's fine. But this is holy. We are gathered here for one purpose, to, to honor our God, to know Him, to draw near to Him, to be refreshed in His gospel, His grace. You know, the church is the only organization in the world that's going to last forever. Right? You can't invest in any, uh, in any other company and be sure it's not going to fold at some point. The church, maybe not individual churches, but the church will not fold. Right? This is the church, right? The bride of Christ, the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the new Jerusalem. Is the church set apart in your mind? In your heart, do, these, uh, do, do you think that these gatherings are special, not because you feel the right thing or hear the right thing or even learn the right thing, but, but because these people are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood? Can we look around ourselves and see one another with the eyes of faith and see that th this is holy to God? Love the church, not because she's perfect, but because she is holy to God. He loves her. Christ died for her. And if you want to have the heart of Christ, you need to love his church. Third, we sanctify yourself. Right? One of the dangers of the priests was profaning themselves. They were holy and had to be careful to treat themselves as such. Remember your identity as holy priests. You are not your own. And so offer your lives a living sacrifice to God, Paul says in Rome. Live no longer for yourselves, but for him who for your sake died and was raised, he says in 2 Corinthians. Treat yourselves as a holy thing set apart for God. Give yourself, your whole self, and every moment over to the Father's will and the Father's glory. That may not mean you do different things during your day, but it will mean you do what you do differently oriented toward the Father's glory in light of the Father's grace. Fourth, sanctify the profane. Remember, profane is not necessarily bad. It's just not yet a part of God's temple, not yet being used consciously for the glory of the Father. Paul says, right, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Elsewhere, Paul says that every created thing is good and that is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It was created, so it's good, but it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, we are to use everything in our power to glorify the Father. And yes, that means food and drink, but it also means your papers and your exams and your textbooks, your car and your house and your football, your job, your relationships, your family, whatever it is. Every good and perfect gift that the Father has given you, consecrate that and give it back to the Father for His glory, to His honor, to His praise. Now, in some ways, in order to do this, we have to stop living merely with sort of worldly categories and distinctions. We, we, we live with these distinctions, you know, rich and poor, black and white, cool and uncool, Republican and Democrat, Trump and Hillary, right? Uh, we, live, we, we need to live with a different 
distinction, set of categories in mind. The, cat the distinction of holy and profane, the sacred and the common. Uh, we don't merely want to live good lives, but holy lives dedicated to our Father. Our job is to take the profane, take the common, however good it might be, and sanctify it by offering it up for the Father for His glory and honor and praise. All right, much more briefly, a, a couple specific things from the text, and they don't really fall under what I've just said, but I feel like they, they need to be said in light of the text, but they'll be brief. In light of the text, in light of the gospel. Uh, and, and the first is, it's just three things. First is, we need to live in light of, of life, right? The life that God has given us. You know, the priest avoided death to portray life in paradise. But we have life in paradise. We have been raised and seated with Christ. We are united to Christ. We have life. We don't need to avoid death. We can live radically, though, without the fear of death as we live in the hope of the fullness of that life to come. And we cultivate that fearlessness as we meditate on our life in Christ, as we meditate on Christ's resurrection and our union with Him, as we think about that and let that sink into our hearts and minds, the sting of death is taken away. And the fear of death is taken away. We should live in light of life. We should also draw near to unclean people, as Jesus did. You know, the priests avoided the unclean people to show the purity of life in paradise. But Jesus makes unclean people clean. And as we draw near as Jesus did, and as we touch the unclean as Jesus did, and as we speak words of grace as Jesus did, rather than avoiding people, we actually open up for them the only way of cleansing for the unclean, which is through the blood of Jesus. So Jesus didn't need to avoid the unclean for fear of becoming unclean. Rather, he, he, he approached them, he drew near to them in order to make them clean, and we can do the same as we bring God's grace to people. Third is uh, rejoice in the hope of the resurrection body. Rejoice in the hope of the resurrection body. You don't need to feel shame for the, 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 our present blemished bodies. Right? The priests could not officiate if they had a blemish, right? To show the perfection of life in paradise, they were held off. But we have been accepted in Christ. We can draw near in Christ. And Jesus' resurrection means that we live in the hope of that perfection. We will be renewed and made perfect and glorious. In our culture, we all live, right, in, our, in this culture, if, if not others, in all our culture, we all live with this constant reminder that our bodies are not what we wish they were, or not what our culture says they should be, at least. But do you also live with the knowledge of what you will one day be? We have this hope of the resurrection of our bodies, of the renewal of our bodies, of perfection, of glory. We can live in that hope. We don't need to live in shame. We don't need to live in defeat. We can live in the hope of what is to come. I will be glorious. I may not look like it now, but I will be glorious one day. We can face death. We can touch the unclean. We can live in hope can live as if God and the gospel were real. can live as if Jesus really did defeat death 
and really did leave our uncleanness in the grave and really does open the way into the Father's presence for all, whatever our imperfections, whatever our sin, whatever our guilt, whatever our shame. Let's pray. Our Father, we... I'm sure we still don't fully get it. I don't fully get it. We are holy, set apart to you, that we are united to Christ who is sitting at your right hand. And so we are there in him, just as he is here in us. Father, help us to to consecrate our lives to you, to offer ourselves up to you every moment, every word, every deed, every thought. Whatever we do, whatever we say, wherever we are, Father, we pray that it would be to your glory. We pray, Father, that you would subdue our, our desire to have a name for ourselves and that you would replace that in light of the cross, in light of your love for us, in light of your perfection. We pray that you would replace that with a desire for your glory and your honor and your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.